Hi, friends. Welcome to Unyielding, a podcast for Pathways to Hope Network. Our goal for this podcast is to connect with mothers of children facing the juvenile court system. We want to use this platform to give a voice to the challenges you're facing while you're learning to navigate the sometimes scary and uncertain world we enter when our child has been charged with a crime. For the next 30 or so minutes, we hope that you will feel seen and cared for. We hope that you are reminded of your value and that you leave a little stronger than you arrived. Most importantly, though, we hope to honor the always beautiful, often heart-wrenching, unyielding love that a mother has for her child. Hey, friends. I'm glad you're here today because today we're talking about something really important. We're talking about grief. A lot of people associate grief only with the death of a loved one, but the truth is we experience grief for a lot of different reasons. Grief over friendships or relationships that didn't work out the way we had planned. Grief over a loss of a career. Grief over having to move away from the place we built a home. And for many parents, grief over losing the life you imagined that you would have with your child. That's a real thing. And sometimes we're so consumed with trying to keep our heads above water with court dates and challenging behaviors and worrying about the future that it's really easy to dismiss the fact that there is real grief under the surface. Here's the thing. Nobody, not one mama out there started her family imagining the struggles her children would go through. And while we may have anticipated bumps down the road, we also fully believed in our ability to overcome those obstacles until, well, until doubt crept in. But when you have a child who is struggling to find their path and they're choosing these routes that you are certain will only lead them to a dead end, so much energy goes into managing that situation. I know so many moms who pour themselves exhaustively into researching programs and interviewing counselors, reading articles online, even watching YouTube videos. They're attending meeting after meeting with school administration and probation counselors, all the while doing the work of a full-time private investigator just to make sure they know what their child is up to in the hopes of trying to stay one step ahead of the danger. And with all of this, who has time left for grief? Who has the time to mourn the losses and the shifts and the transitions, big and small, that they're experiencing? Who even has the wherewithal to know that somewhere inside us, there is still a piece of the mama we used to be that desperately longs to have what she lost validated? A mama who, before she can move forward, needs it to be said that life didn't turn out the way she had planned. That mama who dreamt of the relationship she would have with her child, the mom she would be to them. Visions of her kids at middle school graduation or the first day of high school, the dates and the dances that she would snap pictures at, the conversations they would have, and how her child would trust her with their secrets because this mama knew and loved them more than anything in the world. But in a world that now resembles something really different, there needs to be a reconciliation between 
those dreams and the reality? And how does that even happen without acknowledging the grief? When thinking about grief, there was one person who came to mind that I knew would be an incredible blessing to you. Her name is Mary Cranston, and she is a life coach, a counselor, a motivational speaker, and a published author who recently wrote the book Grief Mountain, a practical guide in recovering from grief and loss. Hi, Mary. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It is such a gift to have you here. Uh, Well, thank you, Angie. It's just an honor to be here. So before we get started, I think it's important to mention that I met Mary during a time in my life when I was really struggling with my own grief. Like some of you may be able to relate to, I had never taken the time to truly unpack some of the experiences our family had been through. I mean, it's hard to know how to even begin that process. And it wasn't until I began experiencing things like anxiety attacks and really struggling with depression that I finally realized I wasn't okay and that I needed to begin addressing some of what was going on with me. If I wanted things to get better, I had to put in the work. So having you on the show, Mary, really is a full circle moment, isn't it? It totally is. It's just one of those beautiful kind of healing moments. And I love what you said about doing the work because grief does require action. You know, just to read a book on grief is not going to help you. It's there's so many action steps to take like you did. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So this is, this is a great kind of introduction to the grief process, but you're right. It, um, it does, it takes work to get through this. It does. So Let's start off by talking a little bit about grief. In the introduction of your book, you wrote, grief taught me a lesson about what I specifically like in life. I like familiarity. I like predictability. I like being understood. I like people believing the best about me. I like having my person. I like my normal life. Grief hijacked my normal, just gone abducted. It is brutal to think about it and to write about it, but I am a survivor of unpredictable circumstances that shattered and forever changed what I knew and loved about my life. I loved that line. I feel like it's just universally applicable to anyone, no matter what type of grief they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. It just, it describes grief perfectly. Talk to us a little more about this concept of grief hijacking our life. Well, I think that that's such a good description. I know that I have experienced that hijack firsthand and it is such a universal uh, topic and experience, which was what led me to write this book is that it grief has no boundaries. It just keeps going and going and every single person's grief is different. But I think the thing that is common that's universal is that hijacking of normalcy. You just all of a sudden start to lose everything that is normal and familiar and comfortable. So for some people, they, they stay in that for the rest of their life that can spiral into depression or anxiety, or you're going to get up and over this mountain. Right. Yeah. I think most of us have heard of like the five stages of grief. We've been told there's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Your book describes the grief journey a little differently. Can you talk about why you call grief a courageous journey and describe your concept of grief mountain to our listeners? 
Yeah, I just, I remember being in college, <clears throat> psychology class, and, you know, we're learning the five stages of grief, and I was taking that in, and then when I met grief face-to-face, uh, it was so much more than five stages. It was an incredible amount of work, and it was a journey. It was the best way to describe it is it was a hike. And so I kind of took, spun off the, the original five and created Grief Mountain because I just, once I faced it, got out of kind of an academic look at it, I knew there was just so much more to it. Yeah. So I took that and I just started using that in my private practice with, with working with people. And it was actually my clients that said, you should write a book on this. So that's kind of what led me to this. Yeah. I really found this idea of Grief Mountain so intriguing. And in the book, I love the visual of the different, what I guess I would just describe as like resting points on the way up the mountain and on the way back down again. Yes. Um, for me, it was just really helpful to see these complex experiences that we have while we're trudging through our grief, you know, and just to have a visual of, of what that kind of looked like. I'd love to talk about the hike up the mountain. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about what we can expect to encounter and kind of go through those stages for us? Yeah, I think there's there's a stage if I was to rewrite this book I would add this in and it would be before you're even at the trailhead <laughs> mm-hmm. getting ready getting ready for this intense hike so I think there's some things that you try to get ready before you start which is you know finding a counselor getting your journal getting prepared to to do this hike right I would encourage anybody that gets this book you can do it by yourself but I think it's it's better to do with a friend or a counselor or somebody it's just it's a hard journey so you kind of need that other person to to keep you going up and over right right yeah so I think once you make the, you know, kind of do that and have your feet on that trailhead ready to start, that is when you begin to kind of unpack and look at the whole grief experience. Mm -hmm. And so the very first place that you look is shock. And that's, that's a long stage for some people. And it's so important to remember that grief is different for everybody, like for how long you would be in shock and you would be different from how long I would be in shock. There is no right way box to check to do grief. But for most people, you know, there is that very first experience is shock, that disbelief. You cannot believe this has happened. You you're, you'll catch yourself saying, yeah, did this really happen? Right. Yeah. And feeling like I just, I'm, I want to wake up. Like I just, this has got to be a dream. This can't be real. Right. Right. And then that kind of transcends into kind of this, what I call numbness where you're just feeling kind of numb. You're not overly emotional or, or um, you're just kind of in the state of numb being numb and not letting a lot of things filter in. And so that can be also a, a not a good stage to get stuck in. Sometimes when I'm working with moms who are finding themselves in the numbness stage, they're kind of like, I don't really know how I feel about it. Yes. They're just like, I'm not sure how I feel about what's going on. Yeah. They're, they don't have any mm-hmm. strong feelings one way or the other. Right. Yeah. You do hear that. You hear, I don't know. Yeah. You hear that comment a lot in numbness and it's accurate. They don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're just kind of in that shock and numbness. Right. So that is a part of it. And then from there, typically where you go is you go into denial and 
denial can be very intense where you're just not accepting it. You're not believing it. Mm -hmm. You're looking for loopholes. Mm -hmm. It's just beyond something that you can believe. And I think a lot of times as a parent, you know, we have a blueprint that we grew up in. Mm -hmm. You know, I did, you did how we were parented, our kind of family we grew up in. And we think that some of that's going to remain and we kind of have a blueprint of what we think our, our kids will be when they're little. Right. And then we start to see that blueprint. It's not going to come to fruition. It's not, it's not going the way that you thought that is a, that's a big grief issue in itself right there. Kind of what I call dashed expectations. Yeah. It's very hard, very painful. And, and that's where that denial, you just don't want to believe it. Right. You just don't want to believe it. So that's where that. Yeah, that's interesting. We hear that denial is kind of a common stage of grief, but I feel like it seems to almost have this negative connotation to it. You know, like if we're in denial, we're being naive or stupid or something like that. And, and in the book you write, denial is an extremely important component to our healing. Mm -hmm. It protects your mind and you from more pain. Mm -hmm. Um, I like that you talk about that. I think it's important for our listeners to understand that you don't have to be yourself up if you're currently in this state of disbelief about what's happening in your child's life that denial actually is a defense mechanism right and i think our culture does throw that word around a lot like oh you're in denial or it almost sometimes making fun of it or or negative and honestly i look at it as kind of a god-given shield Mm -hmm. that protects us sometimes where we really aren't ready for what's coming And so in that timing of denial, it it allows us to heal a little bit, get a little bit before we face what's coming down the road. So I embrace denial. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it has real purpose. Yeah. I'm curious, Mary, would you say these stages happen in a linear way or is it common to come up and down the mountain a couple of times before really like continuing on your journey? That is such a good question. I do feel like there's a linear order of how we process grief, which is the stages I'm describing. However, when like a first anniversary happens or the first or a a specific event is triggered, a lot of times I just talk with people about how you just slide back down the mountain and there's a certain stage that you typically slide to, which is mad and sad. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to plug in and do that work. Yeah. And then you get up and over that mountain back where you were. So I think that there's backslides, but I don't, most people don't stay in that. It just kind of reoccurs. Right. And, and it seems like when you do have those backslides, like, and you're, and you're kind of, you're headed back up again, it's, it doesn't require the same amount of effort as it did the first time. Like it's, it's kind of easier to get back up to the path where you were. Would you say that's accurate? I would say that is so accurate. And when you're looking at this mountain and you're working with somebody or a friend or a pastor or somebody, um, and you see like, okay, I've, I've gone through the shock. I've gone through numbness. I've gone through denial. There's kind of a, an assurance that happens that you're not back at the bottom of this mountain. Mm-hmm. You might have a first anniversary or something. So yeah, it's been a really tough week, right. but you're not way back at the, the trailhead. Right. Right. So that's good. Yeah. All right. So I want to keep going. We've talked about shock and numbness. And if you can just imagine a mountain where we're taking these steps up, mm-hmm. then there's a layer of denial. Then the next, next place that you go is called emotional outbursts. And these are the funniest things. They just, you'll be driving in your car. You might even have the radio on 
and you just burst out into tears Mm -hmm. or you're at an event or something and you just, you tear up and you just have to go to the bathroom and you just have a good cry in there. So I, I equate these to sneaker waves. Mm -hmm. I am a person who loves the beach and I used to surf back in the day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but sneaker waves, you don't see them. They just come, they come up and they sneak up and they knock you over. Yeah. And so I think that that is um, a stage of grief. And a lot of people will say, really get concerned at that stage that something's wrong with them. Right. They'll say, what is wrong with me? And it's really just a, it's the beginning of letting those strong emotions out. Yeah. I really embrace those as well. Like let them happen. Let yourself cry. Cause a lot of times we'll get to a point in grief where we just can't cry anymore. We've cried out. And so I think that process of crying is really important. So on the emotional outbursts, I can definitely relate to having those moments where like you described it perfectly when you said you're, you're thinking to yourself, like, what is wrong with me? Is there a way that you suggest talking about those situations when they occur afterwards? Cause sometimes our family members can, um, it can be concerning for them too. Like if they see us, you know, just really get upset for a moment. So is there a way that you can think of that would be easy to like approach those conversations with family, maybe after something has happened? Yeah, I think that's a good thing to bring up, which explains why it's not good to do counseling or coaching with family. Um, because they are, they, they care deeply about you. and They are emotionally tied to you. Right. So doing this process with somebody outside the family with a professional is really important, especially at that stage of emotional outburst. Mm-hmm. But I think first of all, um, I want to share this. It's something I learned personally about in my thirties. I was a person who I kind of had an aversion to crying. Like I just, I was very uncomfortable with it and I never would cry. I, I just, I don't know if it was like the old athlete thing, like tough up all the time, but I just had an aversion to it. And then I went to a conference and I heard this guy talking and he explained that tears are just a different language than words. Mm. So words are a language. And when tears come, they're a different language. There's their tears are saying something your words aren't able to say. Mm. And for me, that was a light bulb moment that helped me to embrace crying, embrace emotional outbursts because, and then also approach them with a curiosity, like, what are these tears saying? Yeah. And so if you can kind of change your, your mindset about tears and crying, it really helps with this stage because then you're just free to do it. Yeah. And I think with family, you just, you have to do a little bit of that educating, like this is part of grief. I'm okay. And this is part of it. Yeah. That's so good. I love that saying about tears. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. That's such a, that's mm-hmm. such a beautiful way of looking at it because um, yeah, because you know, some, sometimes like all I'll be working with some moms who, yeah, are really struggling with, you know, showing that emotion, you know, they just bury it deep and, and they do feel a certain level of shame for that. And then also I work with other moms who feel like they cry too much, you know, and then they'll apologize for always crying. And so I love that idea that tears are a different language. Yes. And I think that sometimes giving people permission that cry it out and someday you won't be able to cry anymore. You just give them permission. Like this is your time. This is your season to just let it all out. Right. And I find that helps just permission. There's no shame. There's, you know, not overthinking it. Mm -hmm. It's just a release, you know? 
Yeah, I love that. All right. So talking shock, numbness, denial, emotional outbursts. The next stage that comes along is called mad and sad. And in the book, I call that a wrecking ball. Um, and I call it that because this is this is the, a really long stage. We stay here for a bit. And that is where you swing between, you think about wrecking ball swinging between being sad about it and being mad about yeah. it. And literally within one minute, you can flip from one to the other. You know, you can just go, you can be sad. No, literally 30 seconds later, you're just ticked off and you're mad. Yeah. That is a, a long stage in grief. And a lot of times I have people come into my office and that is exactly what they've been stuck in sometimes for years is mad and sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember, um, I remember you teaching me this one. The technique behind it was uh, just being able to express that I feel mad and I just do and, and or I feel sad right. and I just do and not kind of looking for the deeper meaning. And uh, for a while, my family, like they thought, they, they thought I was crazy because I'd be sitting there and all of a sudden I would just let out a heavy sigh and be like, I feel sad and I just do. <laughs> and, and they would look at me like, okay, <laughs> but it's still something I do. And it's actually really helpful to get out of that, like stuck thinking cycle. And, um, it's something I do with my kids too, when they're upset and they're having trouble expressing what's going on. I just mm -hmm. offer them the gift of, I just do, and it's permission for everyone to just move on while still allowing them to come back to it later if they need to. Yeah, that is so important. I'm so glad you brought that up. And <clears throat> accepting our feelings as they are yeah. and not analyzing them, not thinking of 50,000 reasons why you're sad. Right. Um, that is what spins up in our mind and typically uh, mushrooms into anxiety. Right. Instead, you just say, I feel sad and I just do. I feel sad. I'm having a tough day and I just am. Mm -hmm. And that there's a release in that. You just let it go. There definitely is. Yeah. Feelings are always changing. Mm -hmm. So not overthinking it because 15 minutes later, you're going to be something else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was so good. That was, that was one of like a huge takeaway from our sessions together. That, that one skill that I learned from you. Yeah. That's awesome. So we're on, what are we on now? Searching, searching, okay. searching. So, yeah. So you, you know, you kind of push through those emotional outbursts, letting those happen. You do mad and sad. Then searching is where you, you begin to kind of look for, sometimes they call it bargaining, um, but where you're searching for reasons why this happened, you're trying to make some sense out of it. Yeah. Like, you know, ha had I been there, this wouldn't have happened. Or, you know, if this person could have had that appointment, this might not have happened. Right. Or if this parent had intervened, this might not have happened. So you start that searching for meaning. Um, this is more of a cognitive stage. The others before is a little bit more e emotional, but this is a cognitive stage where you're thinking and entertaining lots of ideas. Yeah. And what typically happens is people do that and you need to do that. And, and there's, that's a process, but by the end of that, you typically realize that even that doesn't change in your pain, right. you're, you're, you're still right back in the pain of the grief. But it is, it's normal. It's, it's part of how we're made being, you know, cognitive people and emotional people. And this is definitely a cognitive stage. Yeah. So in the book, you say searching in the grief process leads to nowhere. It's a dead end every time. 
Our search is looking for reasons, explanations, rational truths, directions, Mm -hmm. and causes to make sense of tragedy. And then we pick up the search the next day day after day. Yes. Mary, I spent so much time here. In fact, I feel like I, I spent months in this phase. Yeah. It was really weird because I recognized at the time that it wasn't helpful, but it was almost like my mind needed to go through that mental process. Is there a benefit to being in that searching stage? I think that it has to do with actually just the way that we're made. I, that's why this grief journey is so intense because it's, it's not just emotional. It's, it's cognitive too. It's, it's a thinking thing. So it is very important to do the searching. And when I'm sitting with people, I know the day will come where they're exhausted and won't do it anymore, but there's value in them digging and searching and cognitively looking at what they're coming up with. You know, there's some people that are wired to be thinkers first, and there's some people that are wired to be feelers first. Yeah. And for the thinkers first, this is very important. It's a very important phase. In trauma research, we know and we understand that when we're in fight and flight mode, we're not using the part of our brain that is tied to logical thinking. So is this kind of an indication that like we're now beginning to move out of that fight or flight stage and into more of a cognitive space? Yes, I think it does. It's, um, I would say that the research does point to that. And we begin to get out of that, I don't know, and that raw, the rawness of the earlier stages to kind of the logical, practical, cognitive part of our being. Oh man, I just love this. Okay. I love so far. I just, I love everything about like what we're talking about because it's, it's so, it's so practical and it's so, it perfectly shows, you know, and and you can relate to all of these different steps. Like as you're talking about each one of these journeys, it's like, yes, yes, that that's a thing for sure. Yeah. Yes, it is. And I think it also, I hear this comment a lot. I'm not crazy. You know, so they see working these stages that before you're kind of doubting yourself, I'm like, am I crazy? Why is this yeah. so hard? And this mountain kind of takes that away and it validates that these things are real. They're happening and you're moving yeah, through them. I love that. Okay. So I'm going to go on to disorganization and disorganization is a really a funny thing for people that are very organized when this hits them that it's very noticeable to people that are kind of wired, not as organized. This isn't as prevalent. So what happens is the toll that shock, numbness, denial, emotional outburst, sad, and mad searching the toll that that takes on you. You start to have some, some losses and you start to get disorganized. My dad passed away on April 6th. And so I am, I'm going through this mountain right now. This is a hike that you'll do over and over in your lifetime. And I have been so disorganized. Like, like I can't find my keys. I have, I've lost my debit card at one point. I mean, I just, I'm constantly losing stuff that I usually don't. And my mind is just, it's just spent. It's spent by these earlier stages. And I have to give myself grace a lot, but I, the other day, I just said to myself, I'm losing my mind, you know, because I keep forgetting stuff, forgetting appointments, stuff I typically don't do. I'm kind of an organized, you know, person by nature. And so it's so 
odd for me to be doing this, but I'm in that stage right now. Yeah. And so does that come from a place of, like you said, your mind is just spent, like it's, it's used. Yeah. I think it, it also comes from, and if I was to rewrite this book, I would emphasize greater how physical grief is. Mm -hmm. I I would emphasize that greater um, if I wrote this again, because I think it's very physical, like the emotional drain makes you so physically tired and your sleep is disturbed a lot when you're going through these stages, you know, with the searching, you wake up in the middle of the night and then you can't get back to sleep. So there's kind of a physical thing let down that happens at this door disorganization that is coming from lack of sleep, not eating well, all the searching. And then you just start to kind of unravel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, once people see that and experience it again, they're like, I'm normal. Right. So there's so much to being like, okay, I'm normal. This is, this is a step for sure. And then from there, typically you go into panic. And panic is the stage and it's in, we're right peaking up close to the tip top of the mountain and panic sets in there because you don't see a lot of things changing. You start to have those moments of this is my new normal. Mm. This is my new life. I don't like it. And this is what I'm going to have. It's not my blueprint. And you start to have those kind of thoughts and it kind of leads you into this like fluttery panic. Yeah. You're like, it's going to be like this forever. Yeah. Forever thinking. Yeah. And there, there's some reality in it is forever. Like my dad that I just lost, it is forever, mm-hmm. you know, that he is gone. Right. The intensity of grief is not forever. Right. There'll be sad, there'll be anniversaries, but the intensity tends to go down as you work this mountain. But panic is a, is a kind of a scary place to be in this journey. And then from there, that leads us to the worst place of the mountain, the tip top. And I call that loneliness, guilt, and isolation. Mm-hmm. And the that's, a, that's what I call a pack of three. Mm-hmm. So you get hit up by a pack of emotions that are kind of can be paralyzing. So loneliness sets in, and that doesn't mean being alone. It means you don't feel like you belong. You don't feel like you fit in like you used to. Um, That's the loneliness. The guilt is, uh, you know, blaming yourself somehow or what you could have done, or if I was a better mom, or if I had done this, that guilt gets really heavy right there. And then isolation, that that is such a part of grief. You don't want to go to things. You don't want to go to meetings. You don't want to go to a social. You don't even want to talk on the phone. You just want to isolate and stay in your house. And the, that pack of three is, is very dangerous. Yeah. I'm just Mm -hmm. curious, like what, what is that? Like, do you have any idea like what that, that, where that isolation piece comes from? I almost felt at times, like, like I just, like, I didn't, it sounds weird to say, but like, I didn't want to be happy. Like I didn't want to get over it. I just, I didn't want to be around other people and, and Mm -mm. try to act like I was fine or whatever. What? Yes. I think what I call, I call that play and pretend. I think playing and pretending is exhausting. Mm -hmm. So you know that to go to the social thing, you're super happy. You're, you're not happy. And so you're going to have to fake, you feel like you're going to have to fake it. You know, you don't want to bring the whole group down and the energy that playing and pretending you, that it needs to pull that off. That's a lot of energy yeah. to pretend you're something that you're not on the inside. So it's easier, I think, and more comfortable sometimes to just stay isolated. 
like stay in it because I don't want to, to be the, and you don't want to be like people feeling sorry for you and getting the pity vote and all that. You just, you don't want any of that. And sometimes the solution just sounds easier to stay home. These last three, this loneliness, guilt, and isolation, what about these three things um, makes it stand out at the top? I think I, when I was doing that I, on the pain level mm-hmm. and the most stuck level. I see. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're isolated like that, the danger in that is if you stay in that, you won't get help, right? The danger is you won't, you won't get counseling or coaching or work with somebody and you get stuck in that. And that leads to, you know, depression. And then that leads to clinical depression and that can lead to, you know, it just goes, it's just a trickle down. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, and then guilt, these things morph into some very dangerous things. Guilt, guilt morphs into shame. You become very shame-based about yourself and loneliness just makes you fit. You know, we're, we're wired to be in community and this loneliness takes us out of that. So I, I think the outcomes of these three are pretty, pretty intense and dangerous. So I think that's why I put them at the top. Yeah. That makes, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you had, um, you had talked about when we were, um, kind of meeting beforehand about reading an excerpt from your book. Would you be willing to do that with us? I would love to do that. You know, grief is so universal. So I, I work with people on a lot of different things from, you know, ADD to anxiety, to depression, you know, mental health people do all that, but grief is the one thing like everybody you see will go through this. Mm -hmm. And so it's so important to know how to do it. And when I do book signings, this is the, they they usually ask you to do a reading and this is what I usually read and it's chapter one of the book. So I'll go ahead and read it. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. This, this chapter is called just get over it. In my lifetime, I have gotten over a cold, a crush, an argument, a relationship, a bad motive. These things cause temporary misery. Maybe you learn from it and let bygones be bygones. It is a crippling mistake to think that all painful experiences can be gotten over. There are times when such a shift isn't possible. People can't always change the way that they feel, think, and behave simply because they want to. Grief does not work on a timeline, a framework, or a checklist. Our culture today is one of impatience, which is where this statement, get over it, is derived from. Get over it reflects impatience, rushing, and multitasking. Grief often festers in our everyday business as usual routines. There is no everyday life routine when loss has flipped your life upside down. When you lose a child, go through a divorce, experience suicide, lose a career, lose a pet, or lose a body part, there is no business as usual. The impatience that radiates in our world today unfortunately sends the message to people grieving to get over it quickly and to get back to your life. I think the intensity of get over it is extremely painful and wounding to our soul because it disrespects and disregards the ever-present pain we are trying to survive. And if we're honest, the people around us just want to get back to their lives. They simply imply, hurry up with it. Be done with it already. Our world is saturated with restlessness and irritability. In addition to Others sending us that message, people may push you to stop feeling the pain, but that is misguided. If the pain exists, 
it may make sense because there will never come a day when you won't wish for that one moment, that one conversation or one last hello and goodbye. We also send it to ourselves. Our inner dialogue can sound like, come on, girl, get over it. Just move on. Or what is my problem? It's been so long now. So whether it's our voice or others, the mindset is rooted in impatience and an instant gratification social norm. This is in no way helpful to the grief journey. All the things that you've heard about getting over grief, going back to normal and moving on, they are all misrepresentations of what it means to love someone who has died. As humans, we strive for closure and resolution, but this isn't how grief rolls. Grief is like the old injury that aches when it rains. Believe it or not, grief has a significant role in our life. It becomes how we love a person despite their physical absence. Grief is an expression of love. It helps us connect to the memories. It bonds us to our shared humanity. Long story short, I have worked in the mental health field for three decades and have sat in a confidential office with over a thousand people. Mental health can be both complex and complicated. One of the strange things about being a counselor is that no one ever sees you work. No one is ever an eyewitness to you on the job, nor do you ever get a job evaluation. Your career is done in a confidential setting. The rewarding high value side of being a counselor or a coach is that you get the privilege of being on the inside of people's lives, closely walking with them through their peaks and valleys. I am just so humbled to do this work. Every day I get to enter the world of the most courageous, brave people. On most days, I float out to my car in the parking lot and whisper to myself, who gets to do this? I have such a deep love for my clients and I'm so awed by their audacity to face their challenges. The partnership with a counselor or a coach and their client is so exclusive and extraordinarily different from any other relationship. What a blessed life I have had with so many remarkable people. I feel myself giggling inside when I watch our culture get their try hard on and to be individualistic and fluid and it's all good and you do you world. When it comes to grief, we're all universally unified. We're all going to experience grief, no exceptions. We may experience it differently. However, we will all experience grief. It is one of those experiences that for so many are unfamiliar and frightening. Grief is strange in that you can never fully understand it until you experience it. Until that time, all a person has to go by is what they've observed and what they've been told. No one gets a pass when it comes to grief. So we might want to invest in some hiking boots now because we will be going over Grief Mountain many times throughout our lives. And that is, I think, a very important part of the book. So good. Like you do just an amazing job here of addressing the fact that like we do have this, this cultural norm for people to just be like, okay, like it's just time to get over it, you know, and when we're in the middle of crisis, and I think this is one of the um, challenges that the families that I work with have is that they'll slowly begin to see their friends drop off because their friends are tired of hearing about it. And, right. and they're like, I, I'm sorry, like, I can't stop talking about it because they're still in the midst of it, which is, I think, part of what 
brings them to that place of loneliness and isolation. And so um, the idea of you taking this first chapter to really normalize that, hey, this is a process and it's one that's not going to be cheated. It's one that you're going to have to kind of go through the steps and, and that's okay. That's okay. And, and I think to go back to what you said before, I think that is the reason why it is important to have a counselor or a coach or a mentor or somebody who is outside of your immediate family and friends to help you walk through this journey. Right. And I think that's why I'm so impressed, Angie, with this podcast as an easy to access support. Um, You can turn it on and listen and, and get some tips and support. And I think the more support you can get, the less you kind of talk to your friends. You'll have other things to talk about because you're processing this with some other people. So I think, I think one of the beauties, I think one of the silver linings for me with COVID those, that year of COVID was that mental health got very Mm -hmm. normalized. You know, people were talking and, and it's still going on today. People were talking about mental health around their dinner table. I think that's been a really, a really good thing that came out of that time period. I agree. I agree. Mary, this concept has really given me a lot to think about, and I'm, I'm so grateful Mm -hmm. for your willingness to come on the show and to share it with me in our community. I think what's special about it too, I, I, I'm so thankful I'm here today, but that you and I, and we, we did this mountain. This is not something that we have studied or wrote a paper on. This was a journey that you and I met every week yeah. and we got up and over that mountain. It's true. And so we're coming from a place of, we're coming from a place of knowing that this will help you. Yeah. Not guessing. Yeah. And we've seen it with you. Yeah. You were a huge part of my story and you really, you played a pivotal role in me getting to where I am today. And for that reason, I know that this podcast and this book is really going to touch hearts and change lives. I knew coming into this interview today that there would be no way that we would be able to cover everything um, in one mm-hmm. episode. And I'd really like to share with our listeners what the journey down Grief Mountain looks like. How how do you feel about coming back and doing another episode and sharing that with us? Oh my word. I would love to do that because the, when you come down, that's the hope. That's the change. That's your journey out of it. And so I would love, that's the kind of the exciting part. So I would love to come back and I wish I, if, if you could see me, Angie, I'm just tearing up as you're talking, because it's just, it's such a privilege to be on a journey with somebody and to help them not become a statistic, right? Become stuck in this. Yeah. Like we, we are made to get through this ultimately, probably to help somebody else with their grief. For sure. So I just, it's, this is just a really cool, cool day. Yeah, (laughs) I know. I am same way here. Like just beaming, smiling ear to ear. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to, um, to discussing the journey down the mountain. I think that that's going to be super powerful for people who get a little glimpse into what to expect coming up ahead. Right. I do too. I look forward to that. 
So Mary will be back to continue this conversation and discuss our journey down Grief Mountain in our next episode. You can find Mary's book, Grief Mountain, Practical Guide in Recovering from Grief and Loss on Amazon. I will also include a link in the show notes below, and I'll also include links to her website at coachmcranston.com, as well as her Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram accounts. Thanks again, Mary. Thank you so much. Okay, friends. Well, that wraps it up for this week. Thanks so much for listening to Unyielding. I really hope that you found this information helpful and that it served you in some way today. If you did, could you show some love to this community of mamas by leaving a review and subscribing? You know how lonely this journey can be. And when you leave positive reviews and subscribe, it makes a big difference in helping other struggling moms out there find us. Oh, and don't forget to check out Pathways to Hope Network's website. The link will always be in the show notes below, where you can access an ever-growing library of resources, like a list of local and national resources that may be helpful, a page entirely devoted to frequently asked questions, as well as our blogs that cover a variety of topics. When you visit the page, remember to subscribe so you're added to our monthly newsletter designed to encourage and educate you throughout this process and beyond. You also receive access to our closed Facebook group community, where we break down this podcast even deeper. Just a reminder, our closed group is a small group of parents just like you that understands what it's like to have a child going through the juvenile justice system. Take advantage of this opportunity to be part of a safe space where families can come together to talk about their struggles help answer questions, and provide judgment-free encouragement. You can also find our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram, where we post five days a week, posts designed to help keep you fighting. Remember, family is like life. It's a fight for territory, and once you stop fighting for what you want, what you don't want will automatically take over. Until next week, friends, remember, we are stronger together.